0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Full Life. Today we're talking about how our online digital lives and identities might be affecting our offline identities in Christ. We'll talk about that and more today.
1: Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso. Carolyn Pankella, Hank Johnson, and special guest host, Tina
2: Webb. The conversation starts now.
0: And welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Full Life. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. If you are new to this show, this is the place where we come together to talk issues of faith and culture as a Christian body of Christ, and we do this by coming together as different Christians from different denominations, ages, genders, uh, and everything in between so that we can discuss these issues together and learn from each other so that we may all live in the abundance of life that God wants for all of us. And today will be no different. Today's show is jam-packed. I can't wait to speak to today's guest. He has an amazing book out. But first, we always start with an encouraging word, and today's comes from Hank.
1: Hey everyone. So at our church we've been looking at the Epistle of James and we've been really struck by this um just the truth that, you know, James for example was Jesus's brother and yet I think there's compelling biblical evidence that until the resurrection James did not believe. Um so for me that's kind of encouraging in a weird way to to show that the power of our witness sometimes doesn't bear fruit in our lives, but that that time that we spend with people pouring into them does indeed bear fruit because James after the resurrection becomes an early leader of the church and he becomes kind of one of our proponents of this idea that our faith isn't just what we know in our head or what we feel in our hearts, but it's what we do with our hands. And, and, and so it's this idea of your faith has to, to be in practice. And, and one of the most practical things I found in James recently is at the end of chapter four, going into chapter five, James talks about the rich and, and the wealthy. And and one of the groups he, he talks about, or is this merchant class. And in this merchant class were people who were dependent on going from town to town to um, set up shop. You know, They might be in Judea or Samaria or Antioch um, one day or another. And, and, and so they had to make all these plans. And, and what I love about this passage is that James reminds them that, you know, who are we and what is this life that we are making plans without God? Who are we that don't even know what tomorrow might bring? What is this life we live that is but a vapor? And so the reminder for James is that if we're going to be people who truly live by the faith, we have to be people who are fully dependent on God. We have to be people who don't just have a, a God on a need to know basis, but we have to be people who are willing to actually live for the kingdom and living to live in a way that everything we do is reliant on God. So my encouragement for you today is simply, you know, as you make plans, don't make plans uh, apart from God. Don't be so certain of your plans and so clear about the business you have to do, um, this commitment to make money and do better. Because tomorrow is unknown. Even today is unknown. This life is unknown. Instead, I want to invite you to simply trust and rely on God. Ask God to lead your plans Ask the spirit to direct your paths and ask Jesus to remain the center of it all. Because if we're willing to trust God, then these plans will be blessed. And if we're willing to rely on God, we'll find that his leading leads us not only to peace, um, but it leads to the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to encourage you to, to just maybe take a moment or maybe every day as you wake up, just commit that day to the Lord as you commit not only yourself, but your gifts and resources and your plans to the Lord as well. Take care and God bless.
0: Well, so good. That's definitely something I'm working on. Uh, So thank you, Hank, for that reminder. Um, We all, of course, invite you to follow us on social media. Uh, Follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube, or our audio version of our podcast. You can find us there as well. And now let's get to today's discussion and welcome everyone else in. Hello, Tina Hi. and Carolyn. Welcome back. This book is very heavily uh, from J-, J. Kim, Pastor J. Kim. He'll join us in a little bit, but it, he focuses heavily on the fruits of the spirit in his, mm. in his explanation of, of where we've gone astray in our online worlds and, and what this true walk with Jesus is in our offline worlds and our true natures and selves. So I wanted to ask you uh, all before we start with Jay, is what of the fruits of the spirit maybe um, are is your gifting or ones that you've had to really work on developing heart that have been more difficult for you? Anything any stories or anything you want to tell about the fruits of the spirit?
3: I have to be honest, I think I struggle with a lot of them at some point in time every day. Or in, in my, don't I mean I don't know if everybody else feels like that, but you know, love, joy, peace, I mean sometimes it's hard to love people. I mean, let's just be honest. If everybody isn't exactly like us, sometimes it's hard to love people. Joy, peace. I mean, we live in a time where, I mean, I just went through down all these, well, man, I think there is at some point all of them that I need to bring before God. But you know, I was listening to this John Jergeson. I don't know if you guys ever listened to him. He, He does a lot of stuff for young kids. And he does such a great thing about the fruit of the spirit that it's not about an outward activity. I'm going to even quote him because he said it's about cultivating a spirit and a surrendered heart that will produce these type of virtues. And I love it because it takes some of the legalism off of me of, you know, that that's not what this is about. This is about that our battle is between this flesh and the spirit. And it's really getting close enough to God that these are fruits of the spirit of being close to God. So. I have to tell you I'm every day I'm before God saying God help me out with these. I don't know about everybody else, but I, I I have
4: to get before God. It's tough. For me, gentleness has been the one that I've really had to work on. In fact, I I talk this was the hardest chapter in my book Cultivating the Souls of Parents to Write About, which is, you know, talks about the fruit of the spirit. Cuz I start it took me years to write the book and that chapter was so challenging because as I was writing, my kids were, I had toddlers and I had teens. And so gentleness just did not flow through me. And God really had to, you know, show me how harsh I could be. Because what I was saying to my teens or my toddlers was correct, but my manner was so wrong. And I was not aware of how they were hearing me. So it was a huge um, God lesson and journey to really, you know, why am i so harsh why is that my manner what's coming from my heart the scripture that i memorized was a soft answer turns away wrath because when you're dealing with teens and you're dealing with toddlers you're going to have some attitudes and and mood swings and all of that but i had to learn how to respond not in like them but i had to learn how to respond gently to kind of you know dissipate You know their their moods and tantrums so gentleness has been that one i think i'm a lot better now i probably should check with them but that was definitely one that was a battle for a while
1: i think the biggest shift on this for me has been reading the verse as the fruit of the spirit not the fruits of the spirit um because i grew up with the idea too that like okay now i'll work on gentleness and then tomorrow i'll work on joy and tomorrow i'll work on peace Um, and, And so understanding them as a collective fruit, um, is is more challenging because I think that while we can all grow and we're all growing and we can all focus on one thing, the challenge for me is like, how do I exhibit love and joy and peace in times of trouble? You know, how do I um, do patience and kindness in times of distress? Right? Um, how do I do generosity when I don't want to be generous? You know, what does faithfulness look like? So yes, yeah, so I think that's been the biggest shift for me. Is is, is Getting to a point of knowing, right? I don't have all of them. I don't always exhibit all of them, but I'm expected to exhibit all of them. I'm accepted. I'm expected to, to, that's supposed to be the fruit of me living in the spirit. So for me, kind of the shift has been, I talked a little about this earlier, but the shift to me has been do I submit every day to the spirit? And do I, do I learn how to hear the spirit and be led by the spirit? Um, because I think that the work is to exhibit all of them. I will say that I, Well, my answer was going to be was, um, self-control, um,
0: that in so much as that uh, I, I've shared on this program before, you know I've certainly had battles with some sort of some addictions, and so I've had to really understand the nature of what that indulgence is. And Jay talks a lot about that in the book. Um, and so uh, you have to learn um, how to appreciate, I think how to appreciate the and, and celebrate without indulging. Um, and that, and that is really a, truly a fruit of God. Cause we see God and Jesus celebrating in the Bible all the time. You know, he's a very, you know, he is a celebratory God. Um, but how you celebrate and how you honor God at the same time, it's, it is a, it is a challenge. And I think it's a challenge, particularly in this culture, as Jay will talk about in the mm-hmm. book. So let's get to it. J.Y. Kim serves as a lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley and on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. His writing has been featured in Christianity Today, The Gospel Coalition, Missio Alliance, and Relevant Magazine. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and two children. Please welcome Pastor J. Kim.
2: Hey, everybody. Hey, J.
0: Yeah. Welcome see you. to the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having me. Here.
4: Hey, J. Yeah.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, so I want to dive right in um, this book analog Christian is a, a sequel of sorts to the one you you did two years ago called analog church yep. really as we've talked about at the beginning of the show kind of grapples with um, how our online lives have uh, maybe affected our offline lives and our identities and faith in Christ um, so I want to kind of go into that right away and say you know as you were as we continue to come out of the pandemic as we were going through it you know what did you talk about in the book, how, what have you saw personally? And then what have you seen from the research and, you know, the society as a whole?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, thank you so much for letting me hang out with you all and have this conversation. Um, really honored. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, you know, I, I think the pandemic revealed a lot. Um, the first thing I'll say is um, it's, it's sort of, you know, I think it's easy to blame the pandemic for so much that ails us today, but I would actually suggest the pandemic, you know, isn't the, the ultimate culprit. I think the pandemic was just like a great revealer. I think it revealed um, things that were symptomatic in us long before the pandemic. Honestly, it accentuated and accelerated some of that stuff, things like disconnection and loneliness um, you know, and the data bears that out in many ways. Um, and I think in some ways the pandemic also revealed something that we had neglected for a long time, which is uh, just the the undeniable fact that we are embodied human beings who've been created for embodied lives and other embodied human beings. I think we, um, especially in the digital age, because of uh, the way technology has sort of interconnected us, and I'm not against technology. That's kind of a misunderstanding a lot of people have. I have a deep appreciation for technology. But you know, for me, my goal has been with both of these books, not to uh, have people throw technology out, but to consider the role technology plays in our lives and the way, not, not just what technology is doing for us, but really what technology is doing to us, particularly in terms of how we are or are not being formed into Christ-likeness. I think the pandemic, amongst all the things it did, one of the things it did was it revealed to us just how far down that particular direction, what I would call a deformational path, just how far down that path we've come already. Mm -hmm. Um, But the hope is that once you recognize it, once you are aware of it, uh, you can make the decision to head in a different direction.
0: And in the book, I'm going to pass to Carolyn, but I wanted to... Tear off by saying, you know, you point us back to uh, the fruits of the spirit in that Mm -hmm. book. And I know, Carolyn, you have a question to start with that. But, um,
3: well, I just appreciate, first of all, that you are really going so counter culture. Because, I mean, just to hear somebody say, I mean, like you, you know, we we think technology is great, but it's like I tell my children all the time, there's a real world out here (laughs) Mm -hmm. with real people. And, you know, when you have a million people that committed suicide last year, I mean, there's a, we need to be aware that we are meant for community. We're meant. And so yeah. I just can't appreciate, I can't say that enough. Um, I wanted to ask you a question though, and I want to, let's start with the first fruit of the spirits and um, which is love. There is so much talk in your book about love. Um, you mentioned that God is love and, but it, that it's lost its meaning. Uh, yeah. Talk to us about this self-centric a uh, focus social media can cause us to have, and what culture, and even the church, which I love, can miss in teaching the true and lasting nature of love.
2: Yeah, what a great question, Carolyn. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I mean, this this part will be familiar to people, I think. Uh, there's this phenomenon in psychology called semantic satiation. It's when a word or a phrase is repeated so often, so regularly that it's sort of robbed of its meaning. Um, and I think the word "love" has suffered in our day and age, in our culture, from semantic satiation. We just we use it so recklessly in some ways you know and this is a common example but like i love my wife and i love fish tacos you know (laughs) it's like well i can't possibly mean the exact same thing but there's just one big broad word we use and Mm -hmm. so the word love has suffered i think from semantic satiation it's just so common it doesn't really mean anything anymore um but really, biblically speaking, what a profound thought that God says he is love. Not that he has love or that he is loving. He is certainly those things. But he, he declares he himself like God is love. So really, ultimately, when we're talking about love in the biblical sense of the word, we have to look to God himself and the way he uh, embodies and expresses that love. And really, ultimately, we see it in the beautiful story of, of you know, A loving God sending his son to live, die and come back to life on our behalf. You know, as we read in the New Testament, like while we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us. You know, he laid it down, not because we had earned it, because that would not be love. That's a transaction or a wage, but he goes first, you know, and that's love. And so I talk a little bit about this in the book, but um, I think love at its finest is uh, the perpetual motion of receiving and then giving love, you know, fully receiving the love of God and then giving that love away back to God and to others. But in the digital age, when especially with social media, it's not that sort of exchange. You're not really truly receiving something of value in order to give that value back. Social media is actually driven by what I call um, self-centrism, like this constant battle you have to make sure that your social media life looks and feels and matches up to and stands up to the glossy backdrops of everybody else's social media lives. You know, Carolyn, you mentioned the statistic about how many suicides there have been in the sort of isolated period of the last year or two. And that is, you know, that that's not random. You know, isolation is death to human beings and uh, it can lead to literal death in in the worst case scenarios. But um, social media, we have to be aware Even though it poses as a super interconnected place, it's actually hyper isolated. That's not conducive to love. It's not conducive to genuinely receiving and then giving that in a real way.
1: Jay, you talk about how social media breeds um, like this treadmill of comparison and culture and the constant longing for the next thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about the dangers of this cycle of, you know, what happiness lacks and then also kind of contrast that a little bit with um, this complex and sustaining nature of, of true biblical joy?
2: What a great question, Hank. Yeah, I love that. There's a, a British psychologist named Michael Isink, and uh, I think it was in the 90s, he coined this phrase, the hedonic treadmill. And you know, hedonic comes from the word hedonism, which is essentially like sort of the the relentless pursuit of pleasure. And Isink for for what I from what I know, I don't think he was a Christian, but um he, he's a psychologist and he understood that in the modern Western world most people seem to live life on an hedonic treadmill meaning we seem to live most of life on a treadmill chasing pleasure but a treadmill is interesting because you're constantly running but you're never arriving and the point he was making is that that's how that's the that's the lie the pervasive lie of pleasure it's that it keeps you constantly wanting pleasure is never permanent. It's never sustaining. Hence you are on a treadmill. You're just constantly chasing, but you never arrive. And, um, I think that's sort of a very common modern misunderstanding of joy. We think that to have joy, like real true joy in our lives, we have to chase pleasure. Um, you know, there's, uh, Marie Kondo, who's like the the uh, the guru of organization, the Kondo method, you know, all of that. This like incredible Netflix show and multi multi million dollar sort of empire of organization. Her entire thing is built on this concept um, of sparking joy. You know, she talks about decluttering your home, and the the question you have to ask is does this item spark joy? And if it doesn't, then I discard the item. Well, the problem with that is the concept of joy as a spark is, is it's problematic because joy is not a spark. Pleasure is a spark, meaning sparks never last. They come and then they're gone. They're um, mesmerizing for a few moments and then it's gone. And you got to, you got to chase the next spark. But biblical joy is very different. Biblical joy has the capacity to sustain. It becomes sort of the foundational reality of life. It is the ability to live with a sustained sense of meaning and purpose, um, not after pain, but in the midst of pain. You know, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about how pleasure can do nothing but sit sort of in the present, like what feels good right now. But he describes biblical joy as borrowing from the past and looking forward to the future. And what he means by that is that true biblical joy isn't just about what feels good right now. It's about remembering all that God has done and has brought us through and brought his people through and his faithfulness over generations, and to look forward to the future. You know, this beautiful imagery we have near the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, when it says, John has this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and God dwelled with human beings. And uh, on that day, that future day, uh, when God restores and redeems all things, it says there's no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying, no more death. You know, so biblical joy isn't just about what feels feels good right now in the present. It's about remembering that God has been faithful through generations and about looking forward to the future day when God will return and make all wrong things right and make all things new.
4: Have you found that, you know, people maybe of an older generation respond or get it more than younger generations? Is that something that you've shared, you know, in a spectrum of age?
2: Yeah, that's a really insightful question, Tina. Yeah, I, yes, the answer is yes. And one of the reasons why I think in my experience, um, older generations are able to sort of, not just intellectually, but, um, you know, fully holistically uh, embrace that sort of idea of joy sort of borrowing from the past and looking forward to the future um, is because sometimes experience is the best teacher. I have a dear friend, um, a a dear friends, a married couple who, um, you know, uh, lost a son like an adult son in a tragic accident. And yet because they went through probably the most unspeakable pain any parent could imagine. And yet, discovered that God was faithful, not in spite of, but in the midst of their pain, their levels of joy are like, it's just different than anything I've experienced in my life. And it's something I aspire to, but it's also not confusing to me. I'm not confused as to why Mm -hmm. they're able to live life with such immense joy. It's not um, in spite of the heartbreak of their life. It's actually in a strange way because of the heartbreak they've been been through and having experienced experienced God's faithfulness in the midst of that heartbreak and that pain.
4: In your book, you quote from Pastor John Tyson, and you say, Mm -hmm. contempt is the most toxic force eroding the people of God today. Uh, Later in chapter three, you refer to the nature of cool hate. um, And you write, this is hate based on contempt And expresses disgust for another person through sarcasm, dismissal, or mockery, um, which was a great definition. I love how you wrote that. So my question is, how is contempt um, and this cool hate idea, how is it causing us to be increasingly divided? And what would you say is the path toward becoming one so that the world may believe? And I'm referring to John 17, verse 21
2: it's contempt always been a part of human, human experience. You know, people have always held contempt for one another, but I do think in the digital age, in the social media age and in sort of the new media age, man, it has become pervasive in ways that I've just never seen before in my life. You know, um, the moment anybody doesn't hold the exact same opinion I do, without giving it a second thought, we begin dehumanizing the other. And we start thinking to ourselves, like, how could any sane person believe what that person believes? It's, it's an utter loss of humility. It's an utter loss of perspective. It's an utter loss of the, the ability to maintain teachability in our lives, you know? And I think some of that is born out of the extremism of social media. You think especially about Twitter, and you think about just like even news media in general how it's run. There's, uh, there's this fantastic book by a journalist named Matt Taibbi. I, I quote him and cite him in my book. Uh, he wrote a book recently called Hate Inc., you know, or Hate Incorporated, and it's all about news media. And he's got, and I think I quote this in my book, but. He's got this whole concept about how in our news media day, like today in the digital age, um, we find ourselves just punching up and punching down like we're just punching our way across life like we're punching down at the people that we despise and we're we're punching up at the people that we you know either are jealous of or contemptuous of or whatever and that news media eats this up it's like actually algorithmically it's so helpful For tweets and retweets and likes and all of that. It's like the most vitriolic stuff is the stuff that gets the most traction online. So, contempt is actually, in many ways, the fuel that runs the engine of media today. And I think we have to be really aware of that. I think for the Christian, you know, we are called to live at peace with one another. And I think we've lost that calling. Uh, it doesn't live at peace. Doesn't mean we agree on every single detail. It means that we um, live in shalom, that that ancient Hebrew concept of peace. Live in right relationship with one another. You don't have to agree to pursue right relationship. And I think we've lost that nuance. Christian community is a fellowship amongst people who are very different from one another. Christ came, lived, died, resurrected, you know, all those sorts of things. But like, there's so many matters that are secondary issues that we have made primary issues. And then it fuels our contempt. And then it just breeds division amongst us. And I think Christians have an opportunity um, to show a better path forward.
3: In the second part of your book, you talk a lot about cultivating resilience. And I love that because it sort of goes along what I'm saying is because in this day and age, we're so much about instant satisfaction, instant gratification. We get frustrated to go through McDonald's and it takes more than three minutes (laughs) Like, what's going on, you know? So I, I would just love for you to talk a little bit about how these, the digital lives and the speed of our culture is hurting our ability to have this resilience which I think is just so important in order for us to even make it in life.
2: There's a combination of things happening that's making us, I think, in part, at least extremely fragile in the digital age. And it's the combination of growing impatience and increasing uh, amounts of options. So like Mm -hmm. you said, you go to the drive-through and there's three cars in front of you and you're like, Oh my goodness, can this go any slower? Right. And you have this increased level of impatience when, you know, you just go like, what an incredible, what an incredible thing. I'll give you a more, more sort of modern example: is Like when you go on your food ordering app and you push a few buttons and then an hour later, there's food literally dropped off at your door. Okay. You think back five years ago, 10 years ago, What an insane thought that we could live life that way, that I could push a few buttons on my phone and magically food appears at my door. But yet today, even though technology has offered us that incredible convenience, we're like so annoyed when the thing says initially it will take 40 minutes to get to your door. And then it ticks up to 58 minutes. And we're like, are you kidding me right now? And we're so impatient. And we're like, I could have gone to the restaurant, got it myself. Or, you know, like all of this stuff happens. Like we're increasing amounts of impatience, but the the real problem is that gets connected to increased levels, uh, increased amounts of options. And so it makes us really fragile. We don't, in other words, We don't need the resilience to stick with something for very long because the moment that food app isn't perfectly attuned to to my preferences, there's seven other food delivery apps I can go to the moment that, you know, that friend on, on Instagram posts something I don't like, I can just with one click of a button unfollow them because I got 8,000 other friends that I'm following. The moment, you know, that thing I ordered on Amazon isn't exactly what I wanted. I can just put it right back in the return box, put it at my front door, click a few buttons and get another thing, you know, that I think might satisfy a little bit more. That's all well and good when it comes to ordering, you know, blue socks on Amazon or something. But that sort of thinking, that sort of posture Um, it gets deeply embedded in our beings. And then we become really fragile. We do this with our churches. The moment the church isn't exactly what I want it to be, the preaching or the music isn't like perfectly attuned to my tastes or preferences or the moment the pastor says, or doesn't say something that's like slightly political, that isn't exactly aligned with my political views. I'm out because there's a million other church options. Um, Or the moment this marriage doesn't have, like what we said earlier, that spark anymore, I'm out because, you know, I don't feel it anymore. I'm going to go date around or marry someone else. I mean, it's making us really, really fragile. Like that's fragility. Fragility is not like, oh, I'm like, you know, I need to work out more. Real, genuine, emotional, mental, spiritual fragility is the inability to commit to something for the long haul and to see it through.
3: If I can just add something to that, when you you were speaking of that, I think it makes it so hard for us as Christ followers when we end up in a wilderness season Yeah, because we don't know what to do with that. And we want to blame it on the enemy. We want to run through it instead of sitting in the moment and allowing the Holy Spirit to cultivate in us what it is. We don't even learn because we just want to run to the next thing. It's like, that's uncomfortable. So, I'm getting yeah. out of here instead of sitting. And I just appreciate you just talking about that a little bit because it's hard. Mm-hmm. That wilderness season is a part of the growth,
2: yeah, that's right. I love that you said that. You know, God says of himself in that famous passage in exodus thirty four where he describes who he is, you know, where he like talks about being slow to anger and all of that. He talks about, you know, the the King James translation, which I don't use much, he says that he is long suffering, you know, uh, long suffering, which is um, often translated patient. Uh, it's a word that actually means like long of nose. And the, the imagery behind that is like when something angers God, long of nose, meaning he has big nostrils, meaning he's able to take a deep breath. But in an age of fragility, we can't do that. We just get worked up and angry, and then we like move on, you know, in a huff and a puff. And I I love what you just said there. What it's making us, um, what what it's taking from us, is the ability to suffer well, to to trek through the deep valleys of life well. And one of the dangers of that is it's in the deep valleys of pain and loss and grief that we learn. Um, Who God really is.
1: Can you speak to the biblical nature of kindness and goodness and the sharp contrast of the behavior we saw from us as Christians uh, to each other and to pastors of our own communities during the pandemic online um, or on Twitter? So, again, lots to say there,
2: but that's the challenge I would give to people in the modern world. Stop resting on your laurels, believing you're a kind and good person. And instead, just embody kindness and goodness, the kindness and goodness of God you have received, embody that toward others. In a world of hostility, can we be the sorts of people who stop claiming that we're good people and instead just embody goodness and kindness to the world? Today, most people hear those words and they think it's primarily about some internal state of being. Like be a kind and good per- being a kind and good person means like you have a kind heart and a good heart. Biblically speaking, kindness and, and goodness are active; they're like participatory ideas. It's about how you express the kindness and the goodness of God you have received to others. So, the Bible doesn't ever really talk about kind and good people. That's like a modern phenomenon. This person is so kind, or this person is so good. The Bible doesn't actually talk in those categories. It talks in the category of um, expressing kindness and goodness. And I think we've lost that. I think we sort of like, well, I'm a good person. Like, how many times have we heard that? It's like, yeah, I did that thing, or yeah, I, I yelled at whoever, but like, I'm a good person. It's like, okay. Sure, like maybe you are. I'm not saying that you are not, but biblically speaking, that category doesn't exist. There are no good people, there's just people who are complex, a a sort of nexus web of, you know, motivations and all of that, who choose on a day to day basis to be kind and to be good. I wanted to start
0: finishing on the last part of the book, which is really about cultivating wisdom. Um, And it starts with the idea of faithfulness. And it's similar with what you're saying in cultivating a goodness and kindness. We're faithful. We've sort of done this mental gymnastics of how faith is this and faithfulness is that, but we've diverged them apart from each other. And,
2: yeah. and
0: you are asking us to really bring them back together in a meaningful way. And I'll let, I'll let you explain that.
2: We have separated faith and faithfulness in our culture. So I, I use this example in the book. You might hear someone say, I have faith that my spouse Loves me, but um, they were unfaithful. Like someone could say those two things in the same sentence. So maybe a spouse cheats on uh, his or her spouse, you know, infidelity. And then the spouse that has been cheated on might say, they were unfaithful, but I have faith that they love me. That sort of distinction doesn't exist in the scriptures. Faithfulness is just one thing. And it is both the sort of intended posture of your heart and mind toward another to live in fidelity to that person, whether it's God or another person, and then the expression of that fidelity in your actual life. So there, there aren't faithful people who act unfaithfully. You just are faithful or unfaithful to live in fidelity to God. In other words, to live in alignment with what God by his spirit is asking of you each and every moment. And none of us will do that perfectly. We, we'll, we'll, we all falter and fail because we're sinful, broken human beings. And that's okay. God doesn't expect perfection of us. That's why the, the righteousness of Christ is imparted upon us through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And it covers us. But that is not an excuse to say, "Well, I'm faith, I'm a, I'm a faithful person," you know. But I make these bad decisions. No, like they're one and the same. I want to give some people some hope
0: uh, because we've talked about all the negative that technology and our technological yeah. lives could bring. But how do we operate from a place of wisdom in our technological lives?
2: Yeah, great question. Well, the entire book is based on the idea of the fruit of the spirit. And I guess, you know, there's a lot to say here, but I guess my encouragement would be it is the fruit of the spirit. It's not your fruit, right? You have to surrender your life to the work of God's spirit in you. And fruits grown slowly. You cannot microwave fruit and you may not see it every single day and it's okay. Right. That's not how fruit works. Um, But if you would make the decision the slow and steady decision to surrender your life to the spirit of God every single day, even when you cannot see it, he is, he is um, dynamically developing and growing life deep inside of you.
0: And now let's turn to the fullness of prayer.
2: I used to think that prayer had to be grandiose. Um, And what I've learned over time is that prayer at its finest is conversation. So it flows as conversation with someone Uh, with whom you have an intimate, loving relationship. So when I think about my relationship with my wife, sometimes we engage in very elaborate, deep, long, extended conversation. And often we engage in just very brief, um, you know, uh, quick little summary statements. But it's our presence with one another that really is the bedrock of the relationship. And, And so it is with prayer, I think. I think often prayer is just... Um, sitting in the presence of God. You know, I think of the psalmist better as one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And so if we can um, cultivate that sort of heart posture with God, a longing and desire to be near him at all times, that nearness is prayer itself.
0: Tell everyone where they can get the book and everything so they can follow you on social <laughs> in a healthy way.
2: <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Thank you guys so much for the conversation. It was a joy. Um, yeah. The, the book you can get just anywhere, anywhere books are sold and just type in analog Christian and uh, Amazon or wherever else you go. Um, and then, yeah, I have a little website, jkimthinks.com and some of my work is there and you can find me on social media uh, at J Kim thinks uh, as well. So yeah, would love to hear from you.
0: I want to encourage everyone uh, to focus on remaining in Jesus. I know Carolyn mentioned that in our conversation at the top of the show and you mentioned it in your book as well, Jesus, but uh, yeah. Jesus, Oh boy, Jay, uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is about, it is about uh, being uh, attached to that vine that, that life giving vine Um, and remaining in him in that dwelling place and we can do that by focusing on the fruits of the spirit in our daily lives and and that can in in turn translate into a healthy digital life and so i encourage everyone to do that i encourage everyone to get this book because we really have not even scratched the surface i have like quotes all over my notes that you can just tweet out all day long because jay (laughs) says so much um so i encourage you all to get it and really grow in knowledge and wisdom through his book and thank you again for jay we'll see you next time for more conversations here on the full life